0: Um, so, uh, thank all of you for joining us in our ongoing reading of Anti-Oedipus by Deleuze & Guattari with the Deleuze & Guattari Quarantine Collective. Uh, this has been going on forever and ever and ever, and as always, I thank all of you for joining. Uh, if you want to find us on Twitter, you can find us at D&GQC. On Patreon, DGQC, if you have the desire at all to support what we're doing, every dollar helps, as always. Uh. We're today moving into psychoanalysis and ethnology, which is uh, 3.4 or 166. Uh, I am uh, unable to stream in here, which is interesting. This section is a little bit more of a drier one as far as things go. Uh, And I don't mean dry as in boring. I mean, there's a lot less of the poetry in this. This is a hard discussion about ethnology. If any of you have a background in such a thing, it's incredibly useful here. Uh, the last time we went through this, and as always, I try to have a handful of people on the server who this is. They're basically their majors and their their masters, and uh, for one or two, their doctorate hits uh, inside of this world. That is not the case for me. So this is going to be a bit more of a Reading and discussion and light, and we'll get through it. Uh, If you have any questions at any time, just raise your hand and we'll get you on stage, and uh, that'll be how that's set up. Pretty simple. We'll see how this goes. Uh, So I'll go ahead and uh, dive into uh, psychoanalysis and ethnology. We are moving too fast, acting as if Oedipus were already installed within the savage territorial machine. However, as Nietzsche says with regard to bad conscience, Such a plant does not grow on that kind of terrain. This is explained by the fact that the necessary conditions for Oedipus as a familial complex existing in the framework of the familialism suited to psychiatry and psychoanalysis are obviously not present. Primitive families constitute a praxis, a politics, a strategy of alliances and filiations. Normally they are the driving elements of a social reproduction. They have nothing to do with an expressive microcosm. And these families, the father, the mother, and the sister, always function, always also function, as something other than father, mother, sister. And in addition to the father, the mother, etc., there is the affine, who constitutes the active, concrete reality. Sorry, there is the affine, who constitutes the active, concrete reality and makes the relations between families coextensive with the social field. It would not even be exact to say that the family determinations burst apart at every corner of this field and remain attached to strictly social dimensions, since both kinds of determinations form one and the same component in the territorial machine. Since familial reproduction is not yet a simple means or a material at the service of a social reproduction of another nature, there is no possibility of reducing ce rabat social reproduction to familial reproduction, nor is it possible to establish one-to-one relations between the two that would confer on any familial complex, whatever an expressive value and an apparent autonomous form. On the contrary, it is evident that the individual in the family, however young, directly invests a social, historical, economic, and political field that is not reducible to any mental structure or affective constellation, That is why, when one considers pathological cases and processes of cure in primitive societies, it seems to us entirely insufficient to compare them with psychoanalytic procedure by relating them to criteria borrowed from the latter. For example, a familial complex, even if it differs from our own, or cultural material, even if it is brought into relation with an ethnic unconscious, as seen in attempted parallelisms Between the psychoanalytic cure and the shamanistic cure, DeVro and Louvay Strauss. Our definition of schizoanalysis focused on two aspects: the destruction of the expressive pseudo-forms of the unconscious, and the discovery of desire's unconscious investments of the social field. It is from this point of view that we must consider many primitive cures. They are schizoanalysis in action. Yeah, there's a lot said uh, quickly up front here. The the opening here is to have the discussion, as we just went through, uh, continuing with Oedipus, having the discussion around Oedipus, talking through Oedipus, uh, the discussion around how it forms, why it forms, when it forms. <laughs> Look, so here's the thing. As I started reading this, like there's like six of us in the room. I was excited to do the stage thing because last week we had 27, and that became just unwieldy for us to ask questions. For four people or seven people, feel bad. Where's Kanye? Yeah, JK is coming in. Sorry about that, JK. Sorry, everyone. We'll get this in the right spot. A, dictating the story of this without being able to have an open conversation doesn't really work. If we have 25 people in here, it's different, but we don't this week. It has got really awkward. Look, does anyone here have a question I- on this paragraph? Because this is a really easy one.
1: Like as far
0: uh, as yeah, like...
1: I I Go just I, I feel like I just need one little link to the uh, the expressive pseudo forms. I feel like I feel like we've talked about this before but I, I forgot I think uh, expressive pseudo forms of the unconscious so the destruction of the expressive pseudo forms and and what is expressive pseudo forms again is it like uh, uh, the paralogism of of, of the subject?
0: It's all the paralogisms, essentially, uh, if you think of them as, to me, how I understand them is, we're talking about the pseudo forms of the unconscious. Uh, One of those pseudo forms is the id, ego, superego, or the Oedipus, or the Oedipal complex, or whatever complex you've got. One of the great challenges uh, when you start looking back and doing an ethnological study of people, which is what this is about. This is about us, how we take ideas that we have, and we look back, and we basically are utilizing... Our preconceived understanding in order to create the rules that society operates in. We're doing that with these expressive pseudo-forms of the unconscious, uh, where, like he outright says, the parallelisms between psychoanalytic cure and the shamanistic cure, like Levi Strauss or Devereux, basically straight out said, This thing that they're doing is identical to the thing that we do now. Here's how they're the same, and and drawing the lines, because the materials, and, and again, they talked about this. The materials can be identical, like, and they, they, they will be very often. I mean, there's only so many combinations of things that can exist in the world or in thought, like stuff runs out. But it doesn't mean that they're underlying the same or that the unconscious operates the same. Again, to them, it's about pulling back and actually getting to the idea of what desires unconscious investments are within the social field. That's the first thing that we need to do. And to do this, we need to first go back to all the primitive cures and talk about how they actually operate truly within the actual unfettered uh, flows of desire.
1: Right. And, and when we talk about investments in that sense, uh, they're referring to the machinic working uh, of the desire in the sense that it's constantly trying to look for those connections? Yes. Like that's, Is that what the investment is?
0: Correct. Yeah. The, the, the discovery of desire's unconscious investments of the social field is how does how do we get invested in that? And that this is going to be getting into that because desire machines don't connect to the social field directly. But how does desire become involved in the social field? How does it push into that? How do we deal with that? And how how does this happen? In order to go back, it's the old uh, there's an old video I really liked. Uh, one of those like science YouTubers did, and I think he missed the point of the thing. But I really liked. He went around and he asked people said. All right, I'm going to say a series of numbers, and I have a rule in mind that makes those numbers uh, what they are. You're going to say some numbers back to me, and I will tell you whether or not it fits my rule, and you have to guess the rule. Very simple game. I played it with my son. And he goes, okay, 2, 4, eight. And everyone goes, oh, 4, 6, 12. And he's like, yes, that follows. And they go, oh, well, it's you're doubling every time. And he's like, no, that's not the rule. But what happens when the second step happens and people start setting it up, they actually keep guessing, like, 10, 20, 40, or whatever it is, they can never actually create something inside of the way that they ask or the the series of numbers that challenges their own assumption. It's a very fascinating psychological phenomenon that happens, and here is what they're talking about. It's the same thing. When we look back and we have in our head our assumption that we operate with the Oedipus complex or we operate with an ego, a superego, or whatever, this is so cliched in our understanding of our own reality this is the pseudo form of the unconscious we assume we have that we're unable to look back and assign anything else to anyone because we fuck that's the way it works like of course it's going to work that way that's the way it works is kind of this weird tautological reality uh and so there it's a lot of their stuff here they're like look. Primitive families constitute a praxis, a politics, a strategy of alliances and affiliations. They're not a family the way that we describe a family today. If I say, oh, my family, like, yes, there is some level where we have our alliances, affiliations, and a political, and a praxis, and we're doing stuff to a point. But the nuclear family is so atomized and alienated inside of capital that my existence with my wife and son, we're more a family unit, and it's a kind of a, a family like I, I don't know that it's it's not the same thing as the way that families existed inside of the prim- primitive as they're describing it here if this ramble makes any sense
2: uh, yeah I um, not necessarily a question but I noticed something and I think I wondered if you maybe could tell something about it I noticed how they say processes of cure and not necessarily processes of curing and they they seem to always um, it seems in text that they emphasize the the term of cure. Do they have like a? Um, is it just the normal way we understand what cure
3: is, or does that um, relate to something else uh, that they maybe refer to?
0: So I I don't know necessarily specifically their wording here. I can tell you what how the chapter runs uh, is they're going to be getting into uh, we have. Complexes. We try to fix people. What do we do as a society now to get people to be fixed? And I put that in quotes. I don't really like that term, but it's really what we're talking about. Like a society bends people to make them fixed. That's what they do. So in, in societies of old, like they didn't have psychoanalysts. They didn't have, you know, uh, uh, Adderall or psycho dr- psychotropic drugs or whatever. You know, how did they fix people? And I'm putting that in quotes. And that's what they're talking about when they say cure here, here. Like like so, how did? They... Uh, to me uh, that's what also they're assuming
3: saying. Assuming that there's a problem in the first place. Say again. Um so also assuming that there's a problem in the first place. Yeah, it's pro- probably the Oedipus complex.
0: Yeah, it's it's um I I don't know if necessarily and again I I I don't have the original language in front of me. So, like, it may be that they're, say, curing or cure, or there's another word, or they may be using, and this is, my assumption this comes from Guadari because he uses this word a lot uh, from his time inside of the, you know, psychoanalytic or, or asylum space, um, the processes of cure, the the methods that they use for treatment. Treatment could be another uh, name. Um, but this chapter is going to outline a really interesting thing Um that they're going through which is how do we I'm not going to say necessarily that anything's wrong or whatever but to live in a society we need some level of repression I have a three-year-old one of the toughest parts about a three-year-old is knowing when to actually say no because there is stuff like I don't want him to hit the dog as a thing that happened when he was like one and a half because kids have no idea how anything works Um, or jumping and falling on top of daddy when he should like what what is a no? How do you? Because you and that's repression. But you know, there's a point where you have to have some. You can't just be a wild like. So what what is that process? How does it work? And it's really confusing and difficult. Well, in a society, we have to have some level of that. I have to know how to deal with people at some level. How do we function, uh, especially in say a primitive community where they don't have a singular unit of power, they don't have an economy? How do I know? What needs to be done? How do I know that we need to build some chairs or hunting needs to get done or I deal with people? This happens through generalized repression and molding of the subject. And the investments of the social, historical, uh, economic, political fields uh, are all things that happen within sort of that that space. Uh, And so how do we fix this? How do we set people up? How do we put them in a spot uh, that this this takes place or fix them. Um, you know, they use Oedipus as the example of a lot of this, because for us, the Oedipalization of kind of everything is is still happening today, which is kind of hilarious. But for them at the time, especially, everything was assumed to be Oedipus, uh, and that Oedipus was like the foundational reality of all man. And it's not. And they're like, look, there's if we go back, there's these other ways that they fixed people or put people in their spot or, or trained people, I suppose would be another way to sort of think of it. This is the tone, I understand it. Now, there may be someone who's far more well-spoken in watery who can probably talk through cure specifically, but um, to me, that's kind of the uh, thing they're aiming at, if that answers.
2: I, I get a sense that uh, in this, in this uh, paragraph, um, there, yeah, uh, the privileged societies did not have a kind of a strict demarcation between the family unit and the and the socius, the social, um, you know, uh, uh, society, and that uh, and that's because they didn't at that time they didn't have the Oedipal complex, and uh, and the way that they they uh, you know uh, are able to. Uh, you know, uh, be a family unit at the same time, be part of the of the society. Is this kind of affine um, that says it constitutes the active concrete reality?
0: Yeah, I like but, that. Yeah. I like that.
2: Right. right, but the Oedipus complex changes everything. And right, once once you get uh, you know beyond that primitive uh, state of, uh, of economy, right, um, you know before capitalism.
0: Yeah, uh, no, so, I think this this early part when we're talking about the socius specifically, uh, the earth, um, you know, they, they're trying not to be literal there, but it's the world, the the place, the environment, the space that they're in is what organizes the entire reality of production. Because a socius is that it's 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 what organizes, and so the nature of what organizes is not a family. It's the earth, the surroundings, your environment tells you as a group what you need to be doing, and kind of also earns that back and and is also sort of attributed as the the a priori cause even though you're the one who did it you you still say oh the earth gave us this bounty uh the earth allowed us to have this massive uh you know feast things like that um but it's definitely family as we know it does not like as a trajectory of mother father son doesn't exist in the same way in this socius at all for sure
2: so could you say that the, at, at that primitive level, the flow of uh, desire and production is different than what it is in, in modern society?
0: Um, I, I'm just going to be nitpicky about phrasing. I, I wouldn't say the flows are different. The, the flows are the flows. Uh, desiring machines haven't shifted over time. The organization of those flows and and what controls them or represses them and how they get reorganized absolutely is what shifts. When we move, and we will see this, I don't want to get too far ahead. But when we move into the despot, for example, we move into a place where there is a hyper-hierarchicalized power that doesn't exist in this form. Now, there's some level of hierarchy within even anarcho-commune societies, you could argue. But we're talking about like with the despot, like a dude, the pharaoh, the sheik, the shah. The name a person, like the dude, the king who's in charge of things, uh, everything flows through or them. They are the body of it all. They are the the embodiment of the state, and ultimately, they tell you how things get organized, how things are set up, and all of that. It. and it maybe they're advisors, but they're the symbol of it. That organization still starts with the same desire, so the flows are there, but they're warped and changed based on the power structures. Uh, and right. capital adds in. This other amazing thing, uh, which is kind of incredible, how capital really works as representation to actually reorganize yet again, but to do it from a place where it's not one person on high. Capital, despite having a hyper-hierarchicalized power structure, doesn't tell us how to be owned from on top. It's the paper that tells us the capital itself that organizes. So. It's the shifts right. in what controls production, but the flows generally are going to be the same. And I'm saying that with a big edge. Yeah.
2: But they're but they're coded differently, right? There's a certain coding. Yes. Oh, for the, sure, for sure. In a bartering society, as opposed to when you uh, introduce uh, the money, uh, you know, uh, exchange this system, that's a then you you have this decoding of the bartering uh, flows and the encoding of of, uh, the flows of um, monetary. uh, Yes, sorry,
0: yes, sorry. Yes, coded flows, yes, are drastically different. Yes, I should have, sorry, Uh, that's on me.
2: So yeah, okay, I'm just trying to clarify for myself. Thank thank you.
0: Oh, no, for sure, that's a really great point. Um, Other questions, other thoughts, anything?
2: Could you explain uh, how the Oedipal complex, you know, um, relates to the uh, to the uh, coding or decoding of the flow of, uh, flows of desired production? Um, is there, is there, are, are we uh, am I going ahead of myself or here, or? Uh, uh,
0: a smidge. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we haven't, we haven't dove heavily into that and we will about halfway through this chapter, when, when we start really getting into capital, like a lot of this is, uh, this is their, their attempt at a universalized history, universal history, where we can sort of point back and go, here is how things shift and change over time. Here's how they work, here's the underlying stuff. And the coding of decoding of flows is at this point, like a foundational discussion, like talking through function. But with capital, we're really gonna get into what they are, how they are, like a, a few sections later, it gets wild. So, um, I'll probably say let's save that, but we can come back to it if they do more of it here. Does that not answer your question? Did I misunderstand?
2: Yeah, thanks. Yeah.
0: Alright, cool. Uh, I will I will continue to the next paragraph for now, though. Uh, Victor Turner gives a remarkable example of such a cure among the Ndimbu. The example is the more striking to our perverted eyes for the fact that at first glance, everything appears edible. Effeminate, insufferable, vain, failing at everything he tries, the sick K is preyed upon by the ghost of his maternal grandfather, who cruelly reproaches him. Although the Ndembu are matrilineal and must live with their maternal kin, K has stayed an exceptionally long time in the matrilineage of his father, whose favorite he was, and has entered into marriage with paternal cousins. But with the death of his father he is driven away and returns to the maternal village. There His house expresses his situation well, being wedged between two sectors, the houses of the members of the paternal group and those belonging to his own natural lineage. How does the divination responsible for indicating the cause of the illness proceed, and the medical cure responsible for treating it? The teeth are the cause, the top two incisors of the ancestor hunter, contained in a sacred pouch, but which can escape from the pouch and penetrate the body of the sick man. In order to diagnose and ward off the effects of the incisor, the soothsayer and the medicine man launch into a social analysis concerning the territory and its environs, the chieftainship and its sub-chieftainships, the lineages and their segments, the alliances and filiations. They constantly bring to light desire and its relations with political and economic units, the very point on which moreover the witness tried to m- mislead them Open quote. divination becomes a form of social analysis in the course of which hidden struggles between individuals and factions are brought to light in such a way that they can be treated by traditional ritual methods the vague nature of mythical mystical beliefs allowing them to be manipulated in relation to a great number of social situations End quote. It seems that the pathological incisor is indeed mainly that of the maternal grandfather, but the latter was a great chief. His successor, the real chief, has had to relinquish the throne for fear of being bewitched, and his would-be heir, intelligent and ambitious, does not exercise the power. The actual chief is not the real chief. As for the sick K, he has not been able to assume the role of mediator that could have made him a candidate for chief. Everything becomes complicated because of the colonizer-colonized relations. The English have not recognized the chieftainship. The impoverished village is falling into decrepitude. two sectors of the village result from a fusion of two groups that had fled the English. The elders bemoan the current decadence. The medicine man does not organize a sociodrama, but a veritable group analysis, centering on a sick individual, giving him potions attaching horns to his body for drawing up the incisor. Making the drums beat, the medicine man proceeds with the ceremony, interrupted by halts and fresh departures, flows of all sorts, flows of words and breaks. The members of the village come to talk. The sick subject talks. The ghost is invoked. The medicine man explains. Everything recommences. Drums, chants, trances. It is not only a question of discovering the preconscious investments of a social field by interest, but more profoundly, its unconscious investments by desire, such as they pass by way of the sick person's marriages, his position in the village, and all the positions of a chief lived in intensity within the group. I mean, it's it's kind of a schizoanalysis uh, of within the primitive setup is is what they're talking through here. Uh, it may start where we say, "Oh, obviously, look, I mean, jeez, got his grandfather, and he he lived with his dad for too long." Freud would be like, "Done, thank you very much. Off we go, next person." And they're like they're saying, "No, no, no, hold back." Wait, what they did, like even the medicine men and the shamans went like, "Hey, wait, there's more than just who daddy is and who mommy was. Let's have a conversation and work through all of these different complex things that are happening from." The way that they're being completely destroyed by the english which is a horrifying story all the way to how the english are doing it how the tribes have had to be forced to come together how the elders are handling it the the incredibly complex social structure that has produced Kay, and his illness even then and that their their method of going through this we may see as this uh you know uh, i mean quaint Odd little ritual of dancing and drums and noise and all of that. But wait, no, no. this is a little bit more than that. This is a group analysis that centers on the sick individual. People are there. They give him things. They take care of him. They respond to him. They talk to him. He talks back. Flows of all sorts. Words and breaks. Members of the village talk. The sick subject talk. Ghost. This is how they dealt with this in the primitive. How they dealt with this here is not through, oh, cool, let's talk about representations, but instead, literally, what is this man dealing with? And let's all work on it because the reality of it is more complex. Questions, comments, thoughts. It's a really amazing uh, paragraph. Uh, and it's worth reading through. Uh, I've had the footnote here, and I cannot find, I think I closed my notes because I'm just a mess today, apparently. We said that the point of departure seemed edible. It was only the point of departure for us, conditioned to say Oedipus every time someone speaks to us of father, mother, grandfather. In fact, the Indimbu analysis was never Oedipal. It was directly plugged into social organization and disorganization. Sexuality itself through the women in the marriages was just an investment of desire. The parents played the role of stimuli in it, not the role of group organizers or disorganizers. The role held by the chief and his personages, rather than everything being reduced to the name of the father or that of the maternal grandfather, the latter opened onto all the names of history. Instead of everything being projected onto a grotesque hiatus of castration, everything was scattered in the thousands of breaks flows of the chieftainships, lineages, the relations of colonization. The whole interplay of races, clans, alliances, and affiliations, this entire historical and collective drift, exactly the opposite of the Oedipal analysis, when it stubbornly crushes the content of a delirium, when it stuffs it with all its might into the symbolic void of the Father, or rather, if it is true that the analysis doesn't even begin as Oedipal, except to our way of seeing, doesn't it become Oedipal nevertheless in a certain way? And in what way? Yes, it becomes Oedipal in part, under the effect of colonization. The colonizer, for example, abolishes the chieftainship or uses it to further his own ends, and he uses many other things besides. The chieftainship is only the beginning. colonizer says, Your father is your father and nothing else. Your maternal grandfather don't mistake them for chiefs. You can go have yourself triangulated in your corner and place your house between those of your paternal and maternal kin your family is your family and nothing else. Sexual reproduction no longer passes through those points, although we rightly need your family to furnish a material that will be subjected to a new order of reproduction. Yes, then, an Oedipal framework is outlined for the dispossessed primitives, a shantytown Oedipus. We have seen, however, that the colonized remained a typical example of resistance to Oedipus. In fact, that's where the Oedipal structure does not manage to close itself, and where the terms of the structure remain stuck to the agents of oppressive social reproduction, either in a struggle or in a complicity. The white man, the missionary, the tax collector, the exporter of goods, the person with standing in the village who becomes the agent of the administration, the elders who curse the white man, the young people who enter into political struggle, etc. Both are true. The colonized resists Oedipalization, and Oedipalization tends to close around him again. To the degree that there is Oedipalization, it is due to colonization. It is necessary to add Oedipalization to all the methods that Jolin was able to describe in La Far Blanche. Quote, The condition of the colonized can lead to a reduction in the humanization of the universe so that any solution that is sought will be a solution on the scale of the individual and the restricted family with, by way of consequence, an extreme anarchy or disorder at the level of the collective. An anarchy whose victim will always be the individual, with the exception of those who occupy the key positions in such a system, namely, the colonizers, who during this same period when the colonized reduce the universe, will tend to extend it. I, before we go on, I want to read the footnote from uh, Robert Jolin, Uh, uh, Introduction to uh, Ethnocide. Phenomenal. There is an English translation. We have it somewhere on the server. Uh, Jolin analyzes the situation of the Indians whom the Capuchins persuaded to abandon the collective house in favor of small personal houses. In the collective house, the familial apartment and personal intimacy were based on a relationship with the neighbor defined as an ally, so that interfamilial relations were coextensive with the social field. In the new situation, on the contrary, there occurred an excessive ferment of the elements of the couple affecting the couple itself, and the children, so that the restrictive family closes into an expressive microcosm, where each person reflects his own lineage. While well, the social and productive destiny escapes him more and more. For Oedipus is not only an ideological process, but the result of a destruction of the environment, the habitat, etc. To continue Oedipus is something like euthanasia within ethnocide. The more social reproduction escapes the members of the groups, in nature and in extension, the more it falls back on them. Or reduces them to a restricted and neuroticized familial reproduction whose agent is Oedipus. It's a really shitload of stuff right there. Uh, There's probably a paragraph break in there that I missed. That happens, but um, not in my PDF. So be it. Still, ridiculously good paragraph. Um, Long. Let me go back uh, a, a step. Oh, good. It's not in the. No, thank you. Good to know, Taryn. Um, the opening here is I think the most important point of the paragraph all of it is uh, like they're they're giving a big preview into what's coming in the rest of this uh, section but uh, we said the point of departure seemed Oedipal and it was only the point of departure for us conditioned to say Oedipus every time someone speaks of father mother grandfather etc that is a big one Um the second part where they're like, actually, no, this was never Oedipal. These are deeply social, political. These are extremely uh, different. It's a different different reality for all these people. Uh, the interplay of races, clans, alliances, affiliations, entire historical and collective drift is exactly the opposite of the Oedipal analysis. Uh, but then the analysis comes in and it says, oh, uh, because of colonization or whatever's happening, uh, oh no, you're this big group, Uh, we don't do that. And uh, we're not cool with you doing it, especially generally for religious reasons and the ability for us to completely control. We don't want large groups of houses because large alliances are gross to us. Everyone has to be a family. Like why, you have 12 families living in a house? No, you're stopping that, you're becoming civilized. Please join us now, civilized, separate homes. Uh, Can you have a garden? We're gonna show you how to like mow your lawn and edge edge your yard. But you're never going to touch it. <laughs> like it's this hyper that happens, and what happens and as as this sort of comes in is you can resist this. Like there, like yeah, this happens. The horrifying part though is as you resist it, you become more of an agent of it. In the same time, it wraps around. Oedipus is horrifying that way because as the representation takes hold, as this contingent network gets to find for you. It yes, it suffocates you, Remka. Exactly. It 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 pushes you. The more you fight back, it's quicksand. The more you fight, the worse it gets. Um, and it's a really really concise way to look at it, and also really horrifying to read out loud.
2: So could it, could you say that the uh, edipolization, um, you know, takes the the, um, the extended family which uh, it may include a whole tribe of people a community and and makes the family unit uh by edibleization a nuclear family right yes okay
0: yeah that's exactly that's exactly it but it's and it's not even just that it's suddenly you have relations and definitions of those relations that you didn't have before that's the i mean that's like the thrust you like all of these people have, everyone had a mom and a dad, as far as if we want to call a mom or a dad, the woman who gave birth to me and dad, the one who, you know, contributed sperm uh, to that process. And I have a sister who's like uh, the, the female uh, version of of that as part of this. Like these coordinates sort of existed. I have a grandfather. I have a grandfather. These people are grandfathers. Like we're still human. The definition of what mother, father, family means changes drastically though um it changes drastically and that shift into hey uh, the the larger tribe or family or my my field familial line which is a large network of uncles aunts nieces brothers sisters cousins uh steve who ran away and parents were killed so he moved in with us or whatever like (laughs) i like this large network the switch to being a family and having that defined, they use the example here, and it's a, it's a crisp one of saying, you can't have these large homes with a whole bunch of people living in it. That's ridiculous. You have to switch to these other homes. You have to move right into them. And they're small, personal houses, which is amazing. That That's the quote they used in the line. It's really, the the introduction to ethnocide is amazing to read through. And it's a lot of imagery like that. Um, uh, I we spent a lot of time on the server talking recently about the um boarding schools that uh Native Americans were put in and how that operated and how they absolutely broke down entire families forced children away from their parents cut their hair like the way that people related to the world changed as this happened and it wasn't that we beat them into submission until they became American it's the way it operates is by changing the way that they handle representations and how their desire is manufactured inside of everything they're doing. Like, yes, we did beat and mutilate and, and burn a whole lot of people, for sure. That can't just be it. Like, there's got to be other things that sort of shift a person. And and as they talk about this, like, that's kind of their point here, is there's this underlying stuff that's happening with representation and how it gets pushed on. Oh, All okay. right. After all, how are we to understand those who claim to have discovered an Indian Oedipus or an African Oedipus? They are the first to admit that they encounter none of the mechanisms or attitudes that constitute our own Oedipus, our own presumed Oedipus. No matter. They say that the structure is there, although it has no existence, whatever that is accessible to clinical practice, or that the problem, the point of departure, is indeed Oedipal although the developments in the solutions are completely different from ours. They say that there is no end to the existence of Oedipus, when in fact it does not even have, apart from colonization, the necessary conditions to begin to exist. If it is true that thought can be evaluated in terms of the degree of Oedipalization, then yes, whites think too much. (laughs) Sorry, it's the first time I've understood that line. It's a great line. Um, the competence, the honesty, and the talent of these authors, uh, psycho, sorry, that line's just fucking great. God, <sighs> uh, just wait, it's Nazis are going to come in here. Oh, thank you so much. Whites do think too much. Wait, are you dissing us? Um, if it is true that it, thought can be evaluated in terms of degree of edipalization, then yes, whites think too much. The competence, the honesty, and the talent of these authors, psychoanalysts specializing in Africa are beyond question. But the same applies to them as to certain psychotherapists here. It would seem that they don't know what they are doing. We have psychotherapists who sincerely believe they are engaged in progressive work when they apply new methods for triangulating the child. But watch out! A structural Oedipus, and this time it isn't imaginary. The same is true of psychoanalysts in Africa who apply the yoke of a structural or problematical Oedipus, in the service of their progressive intentions. There or here, it's the same thing. Oedipus is always colonization pursued by other means. It is the interior colony. We shall see that even here at home, where the Europeans are concerned, it is our intimate, colonial education. I, I do Man, like this, that is,
1: this is really provocative. Huh? Um, although it is uh, to me, this this makes a lot of sense, uh, because it becomes so visually clear when you think about um, the very cringe side of uh, of uh, good uh, how do you call it like uh, the organiz- like oh, I forgot all the names of all the organizations but um, I recently saw that movie White Cube by Renzo Martens. I don't know if you know it.
0: Oh God, no, Jesus! You always come it's to me a... with these recommendations.
1: It's a very interesting movie. Uh, it's a follow-up from the movie Enjoy Poverty, which, uh, well, the title says uh, already a little bit of the subject. Um, and uh, it's, it's sort of trying to, uh, to lay out the mechanics of how the art world is exploiting um, uh, Congo, in this case. Um, And it is through this um, very, very similar to what uh, Deleuze and Guattari are describing in this paragraph, Um, where with the best intentions, you have this uh, superiority based on the presupposition of how things are supposed to be um, that creates a hierarchy that is inescapable um, for everybody joining the mechanics of the art world so uh the the goal of that movie is to try to get congolese artists uh basically uh shown at at paid exhibitions but by doing that they completely have to submit to the white cube and of course the white cube being the uh, room of an uh, exhibition but also the uh, space the white space uh of white, uh, the, the space of white
0: identity, um, that sounds well, so well, it's, it's on my list. We'll, we'll, we'll add it to our watches. That's amazing. Um, but no, and it's exactly that. I, I'm just a quick read through the, the bio in your description. It's like, look, the, and it's, it's a lot that they're saying here, but they're like, look, the competence, the honesty, and the talent of these authors, these, these people that they're critiquing, they're like, look beyond question. And, Like these, these dudes know what they're doing. They're quite clever. They've really spent the time and they genuinely believe this, but they don't know what they're doing. They don't realize that by starting this line, it's a, we're having a discussion about, um, with Loomer and a few others in the chat about the prohibition on premarital sex that is very common in America. Uh, and, and why, like, how would, and the the question was like, how does that work? Is Deleuze and do they say like, that's what makes people want to have sex? And it's like, no like it's not like the demand to not drives like specifically like turns me around and i go yeah that's why i want to do it it's because prior to that when a kid's like 10 and you say hey you can't go fuck anyone uh like they don't know what that means they don't they don't a baby doesn't have an idea what sex is as they get older they have generalized hormonal urges like there's that that forms. But the, the actual moment when you've said, don't do thing X, don't go have sex. Now, sex is a thing and sex has been defined and it's a representation. And by doing this thing, which probably has like all the best intentions at heart. And I know parents, uh, I remember parents who really loved their kids who really did this. My parents uh, really loved me. Uh, they did the same thing. It gives you a goal. It gives you a, a here's a representation and here's your relation to it. And it defines your entire reality by going and doing the same this thing where we're talking about Oedipus in Africa they may they truly can believe all that they want it doesn't mean anything there was no Oedipus there by showing up they've actually inserted this representation they've actually gone through the process of creating the representations in the network that generates the Oedipus complex itself it's they planted the seed that they watered and grew and then went See, I told you, there was always that fucking seed there. And it's like, they don't even know they're doing it. They don't even know.
1: Yeah, but it, it's a very provocative film, so I, I, I don't don't watch it to only agree with it, I would say.
0: It's a, my favorite uh, documentary of all time is uh, uh, The Killing. Oh, my God. The I,
1: Act of Killing, yes. The amazing, Act of Killing.
0: Yeah. Uh, it was the same thing. I don't... Like, I don't even know if I agree with the documentary. I just know that it's one of the most powerful things I've ever seen. So, um,
1: yes, uh, fucking insane. I, I, I love it, too. Um,
0: all right. Uh, any other questions or comments on this uh, shorter paragraph before we move on? How are we to understand the phrases with which MC and Edmund Ortigo's, Ortega's conclude their book? Quote, illness is considered as a sign of an election of a special attention coming from supernatural powers, or as a sign of an aggression of a magical nature, an idea that is difficult to express in profane terms. Analytical psychotherapy can intervene only starting from the moment a demand can be formulated by the subject. Our entire research was therefore conditioned by the possibility of establishing a psychoanalytic domain. When a subject adhered fully to the traditional norms and had nothing to say in his own name, he allowed himself to be taken into the care of the traditional therapists in the familial group, or into that of the medical practice of medicines. At times, the fact that he wanted to speak to us about traditional treatments corresponded to a beginning of psychotherapy, and became for him a means of situating himself personally in his own society. At other times, the analytic dialogue was able to unfold to a greater extent, and in this case, the Oedipal problem tended to assume its diachronic dimension, causing the generation gap to appear. Why think that supernatural powers and magical aggressions constitute a myth that is inferior to Oedipus? On the contrary, is it not true that they move desire in the direction of more intense and more adequate investments of the social field? In its organization as well as its disorganizations? Meyerfort at least showed Job's place beside Oedipus. And what entitles one to determine that the subject has nothing to say in his own name, so long as he adheres to traditional norms? Doesn't the Indembu cure demonstrate just the opposite? Could it not be said that Oedipus is also a traditional norm, our own to be exact? How can one say that Oedipus makes us speak in our own name, when one also goes on to say that its resolution teaches us the incurable inadequacy of being and universal castration. And what is this demand that is invoked to justify Oedipus? It goes without saying the subject demands and redemands daddy, mommy, but which subject and in what state? Is that the means to situate oneself personally in one's own society? And which society? the neo-colonized society that is constructed for the subject and that finally succeeds in what colonization was only able to outline, an effective reduction of the forces of desire to Oedipus to a father's name in the grotesque triangle. My favorite part, quickly, is the laugh about why are you saying sorcery? Why are you saying magic doesn't count, but Oedipus does? That reminds me of a, I don't know why, a Satanic Bible, Anton LaVey how he talked about magic and demons and how they were all just allegories uh, and just as valuable as a lot of things we considered inside of stuff just felt uh first time I read this even felt like a little bit of that poking through. I just like that line. Uh, is it not true that they move desire in the direction of more intense and more adequate investments of the social field? Uh, Is the turning point and the point of this paragraph like, Hey, no, like you you shit on their their rituals but hey we're talking about like actually changing how a person's desire moves so does it matter if it's some crazy ritual there where they're chanting and hitting someone with sticks or if someone's laying on a couch like like what's the difference like one seems more civilized i think would be the and i'm putting that in quotes um would probably be someone's answer but like they're kind of like hey no we got to talk about these things. We're talking about moving desire and changing how it relates. Questions, thoughts? Ken, JK? Oh, webcam. Welcome, webcam parrot. I love the new uh, avatar, by the way. It's actually the old avatar. Oh, well, it's newer to me. Recycled. It works for me. All right. I'm going to assume that my analysis is is wonderful and perfect. That sounds great. (laughs) (laughs) Anyone? Come on, gotta have a question somewhere.
4: Uh, maybe I'll come up with a question as I go along. But yeah, I mean so there's
0: the Well, we lost Ken. So that was fun. Also probably good because his mic literally felt like I was driving needles into my ear. What happened? Uh, well, working I, No, no, uh, that was me. I, I was I was trying to just that blame me. That's me. I'm sorry about that. That was I was trying to right click and change your user volume and I accidentally clicked on moving you to like AFK. So that was my fault. I I take blame oh, okay. for that. The timing was genuinely comedic. So I will also take credit for that yeah, at least. Fine. So, but sorry. So please go ahead.
4: Yeah. So psychoanalysis is a rich bulletin that, that, uh, does things to desire. Um, and, and, Freud sort of shits on all of these other practices as being uh, uh, infantile, whatever forms or whatever. Um, I don't know. I, I like how this is stated here. Um, uh, and, and I don't really see any sort of fundamental truth value difference between, well, maybe I do, but not in favor of psychoanalysis, um between, you know, initiation rights of any other sort of peoples, and then psychoanalysis, because I think at bottom what psychoanalysis is is a practice of initiation. You've got all of the fundamentals there, um, and and initiation right, not, rights aren't necessarily a bad thing per se. They, I mean, they can be abused. I guess they're dangerous, and they often are abused. But in a lot of ways, um, it helps to. Um, get some sort of sense of belonging if that's something someone's looking for. Um, and all these other things, I think there's a strong argument that um, what uh, white people have done with whitewashing in a lot of ways uh, is a compensation for some sort of loss of initiation practice ever since uh, or whatever can take it all the way back to so-called paganism but yeah so psychoanalysis is the practice of initiation but it likes to believe it's
0: not no i, I love that and yeah. it's the the line specifically uh it's ultimately it's about and it's one of the reasons that you'll find a lot of interesting people who come to Deleuze and Guattari from all over uh, ken who's got the union lacan like f- pure psychoanalytic background all the way all the way to like you know, people who play in ethnology or people who play like me in, in design of games and interactive, like you're talking ultimately about the same thing, which is about learning how to move desire around and how desire plays inside of things. And and it doesn't matter like what method you're using, if it works, like it's almost like if it works, it works. And it just works. So yeah, it does it over here. Don't shit on their version of it over here. It it does the same thing. It, it plays with desire and moves it in the direction of, more adequate investments of the social field, which I think uh, can it's a great phrasing to say initiation i think is a great way to put it
2: so Freud was actually pretty accurate uh, astute in capturing uh you know uh what the uh, what the un- unconscious structure which is the Oedipus complex are uh, operating um, at the uh, at at least at his time in 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 history industrial after the industrial revolution and uh and at the beginning of what um, maybe going to actually back to the beginning of capitalism but um you know but it also suggests that this kind of a complex was from the very beginning uh, going back to the greek uh, mythology um you know laying down that this kind of structure was there you know in the un- unconscious
0: I think and then and Ken, uh correct me or webcam if I'm wrong. I, I would I, I mean I'd say yes. I think Freud got a whole bunch of stuff like hugely right. Like the most important thing is to say that he's the guy who's the reason we talk about moving desire or desire as a thing. The idea of libido as a force, uh, and I know it came around that time and it wasn't just Freud, but Freud Freud is absolutely the popularization of the idea. Like without that, a lot of this doesn't work. And so Freud nailed that. And the ability of identifying Oedipus, uh, because it's it's accurate. We have these things, uh, cathexis as well. Like Freud did a whole bunch of amazing shit. I would uh, say for him though, um, and they will get into this. I don't know about extending it back to the Greek. What I would say is, for sure, it's his way of identifying, and he's not wrong about how the organization of production and repression happens where he happened to be, which was bougie sort of industrial, pre-industrial Europe, white land, and he's spot on. Like, that's 100% how it functioned then and now how it functions now. Um, so it's a, him him looking back through all of time, which a lot of these people do, and we will get into the despotic, where Freud very much, you know, oh everyone wants a daddy figure, that's why everyone likes a dictator, or how dictators worked is through Oedipus, it's like ah, so now. know, no, we gotta talk, so we'll get there. Um, but yeah, no, Freud discovered a whole bunch of this shit and figured out a, a bunch of it, unless I'm wrong. Yeah,
4: uh, one little note: Oedipus for the Greeks is different than Oedipus for Freud. Um, sure they have they, they're similar, but Freud uh takes like like Oedipus was a key myth for, for the Greek socius, but just like Faust is for, um, for some or most Germans or whatever. But, um, but it, it, it was just very much a different thing.
0: Let us return to the well-known and inexhaustible debate between culturalists and orthodox psychoanalysts. Is Oedipus universal? Is Oedipus the great paternal Catholic symbol, the meeting place of all the churches, The debate began between Malinowski and Jones, it continued between Cardiner and Fromm on the one side and Royheim on the other, it is still pursued between certain ethnologists and certain disciples of Lacan, those who offered not only an Oedipalizing interpretation of Lacan's doctrine, but also an ethnographic extension to this interpretation. On the side of the universal there are two poles, one, outdated it would seem, that makes of Oedipus an original affective constellation and that constitutes an extreme position, arguing that Oedipus was a real event whose effects were transmitted through phylogenetic heredity. And the other pole, which makes Oedipus into a structure, a pole whose extreme position argues the possibility of discovering the structure in fantasy, in relation to biological prematuration and neoteny. Two very different conceptions of the limit, one as original matrix, the other as structural function. but. In both these senses of the universal, we are invited to interpret, since the latent presence of Oedipus appears only through its patent absence, understood as an effect of psychic repression, or better still, since the structural constant is discovered only through its imaginary variations, attesting to the need for a symbolic foreclosure, father as an empty position. Oedipus as universal recommences the old metaphysical operation, that consists in interpreting negation as a deprivation, as a lack, the symbolic lack of the dead father or the great signifier. Interpretation is our modern way of believing and of being pious. Already, Gezer proposed organizing primitives into a series of variables converging towards the structural neotenic constant. It was he who said in all seriousness that the Oedipus complex was not to be found if it wasn't looked for and that one wasn't looking if one hadn't had one self-analyzed. And that is why your daughter is mute, which is to say, the tribes, daughters of the ethnologist, do not say Oedipus, although it is Oedipus who makes them speak. Roheim added that it was ridiculous to think that the Freudian theory of censorship depended on the repressive regime in the empire of Franz Josef. He did not seem to see that Franz Josef was not a pertinent historical break, but that perhaps the oral, the written, or even capitalist civilizations were such breaks with which the nature of social repression and the meaning and scope of psychic repression would vary. Continuing the same core thought, uh, extending it out through a handful of very quick points to now bring up a few people in the world of Lacan, I will tell you uh, there are people, I'm, and I've met them, who believe that there are, Was an event that transmitted through history that was Oedipus as a thing? This exists, I guess? Whatever. Uh, But the other side for sure does. And that's uh, the Lacanian side where it's a structure that exists in all of our fantasies. And it is sort of a priori. Ken, do you want to give a little bit, maybe a deeper talk of that? uh, Or webcam? Anyone uh, who may know a little bit more about Lacan than I do? Maybe speak a little bit. Or we can skip it. Like, it's not like it matters a ton right now. This is all just Gwateri doing his criticizing of his old boss. I mean,
4: I guess just briefly, it's like, how do you... uh, How do you situate yourself within um, rules of being or whatever that that are already disfiguring and alienating? And... that's uh, sort of the edible thing um, so you have impossibility on one side and then a prohibition erected on that impossibility um, and that'd be the the phallus or whatever and yeah some lucanians most Lucanians definitely think that this is like a universal thing um, that that castration is universal, that there's an absolute limit to to love and knowledge and then the the various ways in which you break along these fault lines describe your subject position. But I mean quickly there there is no like there is no subject in Lacanian psychoanalysis. There's a there's a barred subject and a full subject is sort of this phantasm of sorts, or or a specific position might consider themselves a full subject, but there is no full subject. There's just a a signifier that that always speaks to another signifier. Um, So that's a major difference. And then, um, but I think what sort of gets missed is that there's all sorts of assumptions behind this. Um, for example, that like the signifier even exists or that the, the signifier is, uh, is something that <clears throat> without having to learn it is effective, you know? Um, I don't know. So yeah, I, I don't it's... think it's the universal thing, but I think depending on where you're from, it could be working in the, in, in the underground sort of speak. Um, and then you realize how it's working later
0: on. Yeah, and I think I would even go so far as to say, um, I think even the casual people who are into a great deal of this or play in this space tend towards the, it's a structure that is determinate. The idea of castration, I I, I always bring up my man Z. Uh, uh, Zizek is absolutely in this space, and so, so are a lot of the people in the space around him. Um, and pretty normal um but again the their their question it's the same thing as it has been uh the the line that they even laugh about here uh roheim it was he who said in all seriousness that the Oedipus complex was not to be found if it wasn't looked for which is i mean a pretty fantastically almost self-aware love kind of way to talk about it um and then in order to look for it you also had to be analyzed and and shrunk yourself uh and that's it's a hell of a that <sighs> to find it you also have to be oedipalized and then you have to be looking for oedipus you wouldn't find it otherwise like why would you be able to find a thing unless you absolutely had it beaten into you
4: yeah for sure and there's that initiation always um but what I mean, one of the things I do find helpful about the Lacanian side of things is that you know there is no true self or whatever, um, and that
0: I think Guattari would agree see. with you. Like I, I there's yeah. a lot he took straight away from Lacan. Like I'm not saying like I love how he shits on Lacan and does it a lot, but it's it's like almost with love because he takes just a ton from him. So please continue.
4: I think after Anti-Oedipus, even though it it seems, you know, in the ether that Lacan didn't respond well to it, it definitely seems that he changed his tune a little bit and ended up saying that, uh, you know, Oedipus is sort of, um, it's no longer relevant in the clinic or something like that. And then he moves a little bit harder into jouissance and topology. And moves away from the signifier. So it would have been nice to have seen Deleuze and Guattari engage with late-stage Lacan. I think that's what we're missing.
2: You think um, here Deleuze is incorporating uh, Lacan's idea of the uh, the lack in the object a? You know, this lack is a part of that. Um, desire of, pr- of production that we is constantly in a state of lack.
4: I mean, I think they get rid of the notion of lack altogether. I mean, not all I think they suggest that like lack is a production of, of surplus or something.
0: Yeah. Lack um, isn't, lack isn't a negative to them. So like, and again, I think less to lose, I think Deleuze has a tenuous understanding of Lacan, uh, but Guadari far, far ridiculously good. Um, the idea with him is that i i believe my understanding uh lack is not a negative for lacan it is like it's a it's a black hole inside of you uh kind of thing that there's a negative space almost like antimatter um and that's why when people hear that and then they hear the concept as they talked about here and they will of anti-production people assume oh that's lack it's a negative it eliminates and it's like no it's lack is actually a an almost like it's a stamp you put on a box next to a box that says desire they're both things in the process they're not a negative it's lack is actually a blocking anti-production uh setup that 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 works against production it's not uh, a negative force that sort of you know is destructive or or absent so it's a it's an inversion of it pretty significantly
4: but i but i think the object the way object t uh works and its sort of position in Lacan's Khan system does have some parallels. So I'm curious uh, what what parallels you saw that had you asked that question.
2: Well, when uh, Deleuze talks about the uh, you know in capitalism, there is this uh, you know um, you know uh, not just production, desire of, of production of production, but the production of fantasy. And in that idea of fantasy, you know is what drives the constant production. That leads to lack, and this kind of, you know, uh, infinite lack. There's an infinite lack there. Uh, you know, once you get caught up in this kind of desire of, uh, you know, infinite desire. You know, in which this uh, advertising and so forth and commercialization is a form of fantasy. You know, where you can never fulfill, yourself. You know, right? But you just have that desire, and that desire uh, is like the object awe, You know, a concept. Unfulfillment of desire, which is lack. Yeah. Yeah. So
4: I I still think we can get, we don't have to talk about, you know, affirmation or negation here to find the similarity. And the similarity is that what desire desires is desire itself. Desire does not desire an object. Um, And this is, this seems to be true for both Deleuze and Guadari and Lacan. Um, And then they differ in the extremities. but but that's a that's a very important point here right and insofar as we've been talking about the uh repressive representation or whatever and what um what brooks was talking about how you know you're given a you're given a goal for your desire and that sort of funnels you into it like uh like with the example with uh sex and whatnot um you know lacan uh, would would Rails against ego psychology and object relations uh, for precisely this reason, um, because that's not that's not desire. Um, so, um, so I think we can talk about this um, sort of not never-ending uh, uh, slippage or whatever. Of desire, just that uh, just that desire doesn't have a tell us per se. Desire doesn't have an end goal. Um, there is no single thing that finally fulfills desire because to do that is to die, right? Um, but the um, the difference here, I think, is that, like maybe for Deleuze and Gudri that like the representations in your dreams wouldn't be telling you anything about what you desire or for maybe the psychoanalytic club they it's like the road the royal road to the unconscious or whatever does that make sense or did i just say a whole bunch of stuff that- I,
0: it made sense to me I'm, I'm i'm waiting for making sure jk's good
2: yeah that's uh, yeah that's okay yeah um uh i just re- you know uh referring to this uh on page 26 like okay, kind of you know way back way in the middle of the page he says that uh in a word, when the theoretician reduces desiring production to a production of the fantasy, he is content to exploit to the fullest the idealist principle that defines desire as a lack rather than a process of production, of industrial production. So that seems to be kind of like a, a negative interpretation of what the lack is, right? Uh, you know, he's, uh, he's critiquing the, this kind of capitalistic uh, production of uh of you know, desire and production and fantasy and, and lack.
4: Yeah, it seems to be a negative interpretation of fantasy, you know. It's pairing fantasy directly with lack. Um, uh which I think is interesting. Yeah, I see what you're saying.
2: Yeah. But I I, I think you're talking about Lacan's uh, notion of uh lack at a kind of more um you know uh Ontological level or something, uh, metaphysical level, right?
4: Mm-hmm. And with that collect, uh, you know, I think they say that fantasies are always group fantasies or collective fantasies, right? And so that's pointing at this capitalist mode of design rep- representation. I think that you were trying to point out for us. So you, you know, uh, uh, the the fantasy of of esteem or status. Um, you know, that sort of floats around. You've you've got all these um YouTube influencers and this strange Instagram thing going on. Um um and like the the what really just destroyed me was this um was this like um like when COVID was maybe whenever we were just getting into it there are all these arguments like should we just you know let all these people die and save the economy or save the people and then you know maybe the economy won't be doing so well and that just killed me and i think that's uh, an example of this collective fantasy thing that like you know we we exalt our our rich or our oligarchs as if you know we could be one of them as well one day or something like that I think that's uh, maybe an example of what you're getting at, as far as this group fantasy and and capitalist mode of representation, lack.
0: Love it. And we should, uh, JK, uh, let's make sure, uh, if you have any of these questions, it'd be worthwhile popping into the anti-Oedipus chat afterwards and saying, hey, let's have a discussion around this because I think it actually would be worthwhile because lack is a very... It's not something people spend a lot of time speaking of when it comes to uh, desiring production. Some do, but there's less written on it. So I think it'd be worth having the chat for sure. I'm very interested to dive in for sure. Uh, But I will continue to the next paragraph. Uh, Talk about repression and lack. Let's see if we can get there. Uh, This story of repression is quite complicated. Things would be simpler if the libido or the affect were repressed, in the most general sense of the word, suppressed, inhibited, or transformed, at the same time as the supposed Oedipal representation. But such is not the case. Most ethnologists have clearly noted the sexual nature of affects in the public symbols of primitive societies, and this nature remains integrally lived by the members of these societies even though they have not been psychoanalyzed and in spite of the displacement of the representation. As Leach says apropos of the sex-hair relationship, displaced phallic symbolism is very common, but the phallic origin of the symbolism is not repressed. Must it be said that primitives repress the representation and keep the affect intact? And would the contrary be true in our case, in the patriarchal organization where the representation would remain clear? with the affects suppressed, inhibited, and transformed? No, in fact. Psychoanalysis tells us that we too repress the representation, and everything tells us that we too often keep the full sexuality of the affect. We know perfectly well what it is about without having been psychoanalyzed. But what enables one to speak of an Oedipal representation that would be the object of repression? Is it because incest is prohibited? We always fall back on this pale rationale. Incest is desired because it is prohibited. and It would be born of the repression of this representation of the latter's return. Now, the opposite is clearly the case. Not only does the Oedipal representation presuppose the prohibition of incest, but it is not even possible to say that the representation is born of the prohibition or results from it. Now, and, and incest in general, like... As a generalized thing, it was it was not done. Um, but it, incest and the prohibition and the edipolization of it, as we know it now, is not the same thing. It's it's the to go back. This is the paralogism of the displaced representative, uh, where uh, hey, you can't fuck your mom, and then you have uh, incest in your head, and you're like, oh, I can't. Well, okay, I take that and I put it over here. And desire still going underneath. Desire doesn't want that. Like, desire doesn't know what full bodies are. It doesn't have any concept of the representation. So, But now it's shoved underneath, repressed, powering that incest. Basically, powering that desire, pushing it out. And now it's been sort of pushed off in a new thing. So they're finally coming around and saying, like, look, not only, and I'll say the last line again, not only does the Oedipal representation presuppose the prohibition of incest, uh, if we are to have an Edipal representation at all, there's always got to be Edipal of a representation of the prohibition of incest. There always has to be there. But, uh, no, not just that though. It's not impossible to say that the representation is born of the prohibition and results from it, because now, you, <laughs> now it's it's a chicken and egg thing. Not to go back to an egg thing inside of a Deleuze talk. I try to avoid that, but it's a chicken and egg thing because now it's. Oh, the representation is born of the prohibition. The results from the prohibition. Well, the prohibition also uh, is presupposed with the representation. So, huh? Now we're just chasing ourselves. That's that's not how it works. Easier paragraph, shorter paragraph. Uh, Comments, questions, anything? Yeah, people want to fuck chickens. That exists as a thing, too.
2: Did the uh, Egyptians practice incest as to some extent? At least the royalty.
0: I, I mean, a lot of uh, the Habsburgs did for sure. Um, I think I think it was it in incest. We'll get to uh, incest and um, the despot because we're talking. We're still at this point. We're still in the uh, uh, the, the the first socius, whatever it is, the primitive. We haven't gotten to the despotic, despotic, which is uh, the pharaoh, the kings, the Habsburg, all that. Yeah, they get they get super incesty, but they have a different. And again, if we talk about how the representation works and plays, and how desire plays within that. There's a reason uh, that they give that's pretty strong. We'll get to that though. I don't want to jump too far ahead. But yes, the answer is yeah, they're super incesty. Yes, uh, to say what Ken's saying, incest is in myths all around the world, uh, a time immemorial, basically. Uh, all kinds of tribes, and all kinds of things. uh, Yeah, Uh, exactly, thank you, Ken. The consequences and the couplings are different. The social strata, the coordinates that I am inside of society and how I relate and how they work, they're different. It's not as we talk about it with the Oedipal or the prohibition on it or how it works as representation, the different beast. That's kind of their overall point. Let's continue though. Adopting Malinowski's arguments, Reich added a profound remark. Desire is all the more oedipal, as the prohibitions are aimed not simply at incest, but at all other types of sexual relations, blocking the other paths. In a word, the repression of incest is not born of a repressed oedipal representation any more than it provokes this repression. But, and this is something altogether different, the general social repression psychic repression The general social repression-psychic repression system gives rise to an Oedipal image as a disfiguration of the repressed. This has to be glottery every time. The fact that this image in turn finally suffers a repression, that it comes to take the place of the repressed or of the thing that is effectively desired, insofar as sexual repression is directed at something other than incest, such as the long history of our society, But the repressed is not, first of all, the Oedipal representation. What is repressed is desiring production. It is the part of this production that does not enter into social production or reproduction. It is what would introduce disorder and revolution into the socius, the non-coded flows of desire. The part that passes, on the contrary, from desiring production to social production forms a direct sexual investment of this social production without any repression of a sexual nature of the symbolism and the corresponding affects, and, above all, without any reference to an adult representation that could be held to be originally repressed or structurally closed. The animal in us is not merely the object of a pre-conscious investment determined by interest, but the object of a libidinal investment of desire, that only secondarily derives an image of the father from desiring production. The same holds true for the libidinal investment of food, wherever a fear of going hungry is evident, or a pleasure at not being hungry, and this investment refers only secondarily to an image of the mother. We have already seen how the prohibition of incest referred not to Oedipus, but to the non-coded flows that constitute desire, and to their representative, the intense prepersonal flow. As for Oedipus, it is another way of coding the uncodable, of codifying what eludes the codes, or of displacing desire in its object, a way of entrapping them. Uh, to go back to JK's earlier question, here we are now talking about coding and where it happens and how. Uh, the non-coded flows of desire that do not enter the socius is what we're talking about. The line here that really matters: the animal in us is not merely the object of a preconscious investment determined by interest, but the object of a libidinal investment of desire that only secondarily derives an image of the father from desiring production. The animal in us. That's the line. To be originally, it's this setup and how preconscious investments actually work. How desire functions. That's the really nice, crisp sentence libidinal investment of food, wherever a fear of going hungry is evident, or a pleasure at not being hungry, and this investment refers only secondarily to an image of the mother. Culturalists and ethnologists have demonstrated that institutions are primary in relation to affects and structures, or structures are not mental, they are present in things, in the forms of social production and reproduction. Even an author like Marcuse, whom one would not suspect of complacence in this regard, acknowledges that culturalism started on the right track, introducing desire into production, strengthening the link between instinctual and economic structure, and at the same time indicating the possibility of progress beyond the patricentric, acquisitive culture. Then what caused culturalism to go wrong? And here again, there is no contradiction in the fact that it started on the right track and that it went wrong from the start. Perhaps the answer lies in the postulate common to Oedipal relativism and Oedipal absolutism, i.e. the stubborn maintenance of a familialist perspective which wreaks havoc everywhere. For if the institution is first understood as familial institution, it matters little to say that the familial complex varies with the institutions or that Oedipus is To the contrary, a nuclear constant around which families and institutions turn. The culturalists invoke other triangles—maternal uncle-aunt-nephew, for example—but the Oedipalists have no difficulty in demonstrating that these are imaginary variations of one and the same structural constant, different figures of one and the same symbolic triangulation, which are not identical either with the personages who come to realize the triangulation or with the attitudes that come to place these personages in relation to each other. But inversely, the invocation of such a transcendent symbolism does not re- rescue the structuralist from the narrowest familial point of view. The same holds for the endless debates on, is it daddy? Is it mommy? You are neglecting the mother. No, you're the one who fails to see the father off to the side as the empty position. Sounds like they're talking about someone specific they've talked to, I guess, there. But it's a little bit of what Ken was saying earlier as well, the debate within these groups. Uh, Really crisp paragraph. Any questions, comments, thoughts? All right. I'll keep, keep going then. The conflict between culturalists and orthodox psychoanalysts has often been reduced to these evaluations of the respective roles of the mother and the father, or of the pre edipal and the Oedipal, without allowing either side to leave the family or even Oedipus, always oscillating between the famous two poles, the pre edipal maternal pole of the imaginary and the Oedipal paternal pole of the structural, both on the same axis, both speaking the same language of a familialized social realm, where one pole designates the customary maternal dialects while the other designates the imperative law of the language of the father. The ambiguity of what Cardiner called the primary institution has been clearly shown. In certain cases, it can be a question of the way desire invests the social field from childhood and under the familial stimuli coming from the adult. All the conditions would then be given for an adequate extra-familial understanding of the libido. But more often, it is solely a question of the familial organization itself, in itself, which is thought to be lived first by the child as a microcosm, then projected unto the adult and social development. From this point of view, the discussion can only go around in circles between the holders of a cultural interpretation and the holders of a symbolic or structural interpretation of the same organization. To read the footnote, Michael Dufresne, analyzing the concepts of Cardinier raises these essential questions. Is it the family that is primary, while the political, economic, social, are merely secondary? Which comes first from the viewpoint of the libido, the familial investment or the social? And methodologically, is it necessary to go from the child to the adult, or from the adult to the child? These are really good questions. Uh, It's a really crisp critique here. Anyone have a question about the foundation they're critiquing or comments on it?
4: I got comments as always. Um, so yeah, I mean, this, the socials seems, I mean, we have to say one is primary. I think the easier one to stand on is the social, but I, I don't think you can just put one before the other in an easy way. Um, because it's moving and it's dynamic. Um <clears throat> but uh, it's not like your parents can't have some sort of serious effect on you that that you then carry with you into your other relationships, right? Like if if you get abused by your parents in some serious way and it's and it's not um whatever dealt with or approached, um, uh, then uh, then you might take that around with you and um, act that out in your other relationships. Um, but it's not, you know, it's not a transcendental fact that your parents are going to traumatize you in such a way. Um, but whenever that does happen, I think, you know, this... I think it's a disservice to say you can just deny the effect of your parents and then move on with it. Um, you get all these habits and memories from from your re- relationship with your primary caregivers, or just the the relationships that you've had the most spent the most time with. Um, but uh, but you know a lot of this stops if not at at 11 years of age then like you know maybe 18 or, or 25 or 30 or whenever you move out of your parents house um and then and and then you can develop other habits and memories with other serious relationships that may work out really well or may not work out so well and then and then you carry the failures of those relationships on with you into other relationships but at the same time all of this does get informed by by the macro system um and the economic order for sure um, and a comment i made a while back is that i don't think um i don't think the nuclear family is so much a problem um, in the so-called west as uh, as there is no safety net um you know, there is no general safety net besides your parents, so, so if, if you don't have parents, you're fucked. And if one of your parents, um, if they're just unable to care for you in any sort of legitimate way, you know, you only have one more leg to stand on, and then that's not stable, and then if that fails, then, you know, you're fucked again. So I don't know if parents are the main problem, because, um, you know, I don't think that this incest thing is is guaranteed in the um in the nuclear family i think the problem is this social issue that we don't have a safety net besides your parents
0: so to me to me they operate back and forth they're a thing that naturally insists on each other oedipus by nature insists on a nuclear family structure like the the it is something that presumes that you're in a nuclear family and By nuclear family, the term exists as uh, not because it came about during the nuclear age, but because it was considered to be the nucleus, this idea that this was the center point of a child's life, the child being the nucleus, Mm -hmm. the parents being the sort of surrounding immediately pieces. So to me, the way that uh, it sort of operates is, uh, again, uh, a lot like a lot of things, it's a structure that produces itself. Um, And I don't really know where it started. That's the fun part. uh, they do. They have an argument, and I can debate it. But uh, you have the idea of Oedipus, which is, I have relationship, I exist only triangulated with mommy, daddy, me. Well, that presumes that those are the only major parts of my relationships. And lo and behold, in a nuclear family, it's pretty fucking accurate. Everyone's either mommy, daddy, or an extended version of that in some way. I have an uncle through my father. I have a grandfather who's just a patrilineal lineage or grandmother, that that presupposes that these are also how I see everything because it's like my kids three, the last year he's been stuck inside because of COVID because we all have Mm -hmm. like every kid who's alive right now, their entire relationship with the world is through mommy, daddy. And that's not that like, I'm trying to like edipalize my kid, but like, you know, he gives me a hug and he's like, you're my best friend. And that shit makes me happy and cry at the same time because it's like, this is how he sees everything. It's just the nature of it. Um the the difference over time is when we start saying, well, if we break one of this, like the Oedipalization, it will actually do damage to the nuclear family because they they insist upon each other. One is like the physical recurrent structure and familial alliance, uh the familial structure that allows for Oedipus, but Oedipus is also the way that I by univocalize everything through Mommy Daddy and therefore the nuclear family is the safest place for me. And it's this really fascinating thing that happens, especially one of the lines here, um, the question of uh, which which comes first. Should we go from the child to the adult or the adult to the child. The idea to me is outright laughable that a child is born Oedipalizing the family. And that is absolutely the position of a lot of people inside of this space, that The child's birth marks the moment of Oedipalization for the father. That the kid does it to the dad by existing is hilarious to me as a thing. Um, Like, it's, it's this absurd, it just feels so patently absurd. But this is very much what they're talking about, this idea of, look, this microcosm as it exists, this structure, and Oedipus as a definition of those representations, they click, and they click really fucking well.
4: Do, but even then, I want to say that what the function of mom and dad or what mom and dad are are completely contingent um, and yeah, maybe you get a, a a mean and a median, but there's there's variance and there's tail end things um so I don't think that the that the nuclear family is always coextensive with Oedipus um sure, it enables it to a serious degree and, and probably wouldn't exist without it.
0: I I can agree That's with true. that. I, I don't think it's necessarily like wholly determinate and required for Oedipus or vice versa, but the nature of like if to say, if we lived in a society where all of our children were taken away from us at birth and raised in giant massive orphanages, would Oedipus exist in the same way if no one had ever heard of a nuclear family? It's like
4: Ah, huh? you'd have to say all hierarchies are edible and I don't know if you can necessarily I think that'd be a stretch. You'd have to use some imagination.
0: Yeah, there's really yeah.
4: hierarchies. Would develop,
0: well, yeah, yes, but but even then you're talking about extremely complex, coextensive social hierarchies inside of an orphanage. You'd have dozens of nurses, doctors, teachers, gym coaches, administrators like Uh, granted it's a weird nightmarish dystopia i'm not saying i want this place but like just as a variance that's not something the idea of having a bi-univocalized hyper-representative version of anything kind of breaks down at that point because the nuclear family forces any child to relate to their mother or their father or both um, or daddy daddy or mommy mommy whatever like the whole point is that there's two there's not six there's not fourteen you by and you see everything as one or the other. And this is kind of the nature of just moving on. Like how, how I, how I realize things, who I, who I connect with. Uh, my first teacher becomes the one I understand for all of them. After that, the re- way representative representation grows for a child and a person. And the nuclear family kind of reinforces Oedipus and Oedipus reinforces it back. It's this amazing back and forth, at least again, that's just how I read it, but it's, Like, I'm sorry. Sorry to ramble a little bit.
4: I'm not disagreeing with your reading at all. And I'm sorry.
2: Someone keeps wanting to speak and I keep cutting them off. So he uses this term extra familiar. That means that the referring to the associates. Um, Is that how you you know that they. No, uh, no, no,
0: no, no, no. That that extra familiar means just literally that outside the family. Um. Yeah. yeah. Right, ali- right. Alliances.
2: So right. Okay. Outside that nu- nuclear family. Yes. Yeah, so I, I, I interpret to mean that he's uh, talking about where the institutionalization uh, of the libido, uh, you know, begins, and I, I, I get the uh I, I think it. My interpretation is that uh, it begins with the parents, who are already part of the. Part of the socius, and then they they uh, laid a foundation for the uh, for the uh, you know institutionalize the child, uh, uh, and uh, and that's where it that's where it begins.
0: Yeah, I, the the first institution we all have is well, I mean, all of us who've had who have a family, every parent and I can tell you this: every parent who doesn't completely suck, you want your child to be successful and happy. And so what does that mean to you and how do you set that up? It doesn't mean you let your kid, you know, do whatever they want around the house, shit on the floor, pee wherever, like you, you make you need to make them a person. And like, that's not a fun line to find. I will tell you, it's not a fun line. And a lot of people don't give it a second thought. They beat their son until he obeys and does what he wants. Uh, They tell their daughter, stand up straight. Uh, Don't waste your time reading those books. You need to find a man to take care of you. Uh, they tell their son uh you you're saying what you're 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 trans no no that's not how you will be successful and happy and i won't allow that these these are this is how we we ingratiate and create people and it's the first institution the first thing we do is we ruin our children it's the first thing we all do right And I'm saying that as someone who I think being a dad is pretty amazing, but I would still say like, it's really heartbreaking and you, you fuck up in ways you don't realize and you hear it later and you're like, Oh, I fucked up. Shouldn't have said, don't do a thing because now he won't come in the kitchen because I said, because I didn't want him getting splashed with oil. You can't come in the kitchen. Now he doesn't think you can come in the kitchen ever. So that's like a whole new thing. And it's, like, we naturally create the repression. We create these things. I am the daddy. My wife's the mommy. And we, we do this. And it's just the only way it works. Yeah.
2: So you have no uh choice but to be the imperative law of the language of the father?
0: It, it's It's not easy not to be. <laughs> I it, it is it's it, parenting parenting through to lose I will tell you is uh it would be a worthwhile like talk to have with anyone else who has kids who's who's done any level of reading on this because like you will say and do things that your parents and you don't even realize the stupid shit like uh have yeah, finish your food before you get up you have to eat all your meal I didn't. Why Why would I ever say that to anyone ever? But it's because I just got used to it when I was little. I don't even care about that or remember it, but it's a thing that pops up. Like these early things, this early shit comes up and you are molding a person. And that's absolutely what you're doing without thinking about it. And it's a very strange world that would be it. Um, but it's, it's the idea, the primary institution here. Uh, but it ends with, and it's the line, I want just to just reread again. All the conditions would then be given for an adequate extra-familial understanding of the Beal. But more often, it is solely a question of the familial organization in itself, which is thought to be lived first by the child as a microcosm then projected into the adult and social development. From this point of view, the discussion can only go round in circles between the holders of cultural and the holders of symbolic or structural in the same organization. It's once you're doing that and you're having that chat, it's just reversing. It's like, Oh well no, it's the parents who do it to the child. Well, no, I mean it's the child who do it to the parents. And you can make good arguments both ways. They both feel kind of broken uh in their own ways for what they are, but then saying like that it's that it's purely structural, the kid came in with it. if it's structural, the kid was born with it. Uh maybe it's Maybelline. I don't know. Let's read the next uh paragraph and then we'll uh close up and uh this is a long one. It's gonna continue on to the next one. Uh A second postulate, common to the culturalists and the symbolists, should be added. They all agree that, in our patriarchal and capitalist society at least, Oedipus is a sure thing, even if they underline, as does Fromm, the elements of a new matriarchy. They all agree that our society is the stronghold of Oedipus, the starting point for re-encountering an Oedipal structure everywhere. Or, on the contrary, they hold that the terms and the relations should be made to vary within non-Oedipal complexes that are no less familial on that account. That is why our preceding criticism was directed at Oedipus, as it is meant to command our respect and to function for us. It is not at the weakest point, the primitives, that Oedipus must be attacked but at the strongest point, the level of the strongest link, by revealing the degree of disfiguration it implies and brings to bear on desiring production, on the syntheses of the unconscious, and on libidinal investments in our cultural and social milieu. Not that Oedipus counts for nothing in our society. We have said repeatedly that Oedipus is demanded and demanded again and again, and even an attempt as profound as Lacan's at shaking loose from the yoke of Oedipus has been interpreted as an unhoped-for means of making it heavier still, and of resecuring securing it on the baby and the schizo. To be sure, it is not only illegitimate, but indispensable that the ethnological or historical explanation not be in contradiction with our social organization, or that this organization contains, in its own way, the basic elements of an ethnological hypothesis. This is what Marx was saying when he re- as he recalled the requirements of a universal history. But, as he went on to say, provided that the current organization be capable of conducting its own criticism. And yet, Oedipus's autocritique is something rarely seen in our organization, of which psychoanalysis forms a part. In certain respects, it is correct to question all social formations starting from Oedipus, but not because Oedipus might be a truth of the unconscious that is especially visible where we are concerned. On the contrary, because it is a mystification of the unconscious that has only succeeded with us by assembling the parts and wheels of its apparatus from elements of the previous social formations. It is universal in that sense. Thus, it is indeed within capitalist society that the critique of Oedipus must always resume its point of departure and find again its point of arrival. Okay. Uh, this is finally then pointing out and saying the term universal history. Here we are, fellas, let's do this. We're diving in and they're giving their talk about universal history. It's a different version. It's one I really uh, have come to really love. This idea that there isn't a single line that goes through, but instead we need to talk through uh, that Oedipus, uh, as we know it now, it's not that it always existed as a single constant line or representation through all things. Instead we should have a conversation around, wait, there are pieces of how these things work. What are the elements? If we break apart all the pieces of Oedipus, Uh, all these different things. What then are the pieces that existed in each of these previous socii? And within them, how did they function? And as one socius led to another and to another, what are the parts that got picked up along the way? They use the term assembling parts and wheels of its apparatus from elements of the previous social formation. And I love this idea of taking the previous things and not saying, oh, Oedipus has always been there, but You know, parts have. You know, let's say, hey, there was a, you didn't fuck your mom. That's absolutely true. It was forbidden. But it's not the same thing as Oedipus. Not uh, the mommy, daddy, me, which is a very particular way of looking at stuff. We need to take all these pieces, break them down, and see where they really came from. And when they were picked up, and maybe were they sitting there and waiting underneath all of it during another socius, waiting for the right pieces to pick it up as it got going, which is... uh, the really fun side of this. Uh, The partial objects. Yes, Tieran. it's what all are, if we take away the assumption or the large scale representation, we break it down. What partial objects were there? What wheels, what spokes, what gears, what motor? And when was it built? Uh, Was it sitting around? Like that idea is incredibly powerful to me. Uh, And that is, as they will continue in the rest of chapter three, From here, this is them talking through, as they have been so far, uh, but this is them being very explicit. Uh, What are the wheels, the spokes, the parts, the engine, all of the things? We're talking about the elements. Not Oedipus. They're not saying Oedipus didn't always have parts. They're not saying people didn't not want to fuck their moms. They're not saying Oedipus came out of nowhere and Freud invented it. It's like, no, these things are universal, but it's universal in that sense, specifically. The elements of previous social formations, that some got dropped, some got picked up, others got picked up a second time. And within our current society, we must resume its point of departure and find its point of arrival. Because we have to start with, what is it now? What do we know it as? How do we break it down? And also, we know it got here, so so let's talk about its genealogy. It's an amazing uh, way to think through it, and I adore it. So there you go any questions or comments before i uh close out and i make a note that we are going to be continuing this uh section next week yeah just
1: one quick question uh, on this whole uh marx thing and the the critique um that it's that it's sort of within the system it needs to be critiqued within system is, is it similar to uh the accelerationist idea of um capitalism leading to its own demise or at least, but also the, the critique on that of, uh, capital, um, re-territorializing the, the forces that move against it. Is, is it, or is this, or do they mean this in a different way? Because I'm, I'm making the connection, but I don't know if that's correct uh, in this case.
0: I, I think I will tell you really quick. I think you're not the only person to make that connection. Um, it's not one I necessarily agree with but I think it's it's a connection that I don't think is wrong like it's we're, we're talking about the autocritique of a system of any system and the the ability for it to be capable of conducting its own criticism um, it's a requirement of universal history for sure
1: right and also the the um... The problems that you encounter when a system is able to neuter any critique in a way. I mean, the, I feel like they're maybe going to get, I'm, I feel like they're setting that up right now, um, that this autocritique critique doesn't really change anything.
0: Or is it not what, this is it not the setup for that? I'm going to say, keep that in mind. That's I'll say, keep that in mind because I want to, I, I don't want to give you an answer because I want to see if you still think that after the next few chapters. Um, okay. and if that's mutated at all, because I, again, none of this is, uh, and all the things you're asking, I don't, there's not a correct answer to this. You're asking the right questions where it's like, this is the stuff we need to be talking about and the discussion we need to be having. Like that's the fucking whole point is these questions spot on. Um, so I, I I wouldn't necessarily say like oh this is wrong no no you stay away from that side of things no bad bad Misha bad no like <laughs> like saying like, no these are these are the right questions this is the stuff where it's like look I don't have an answer to that they are going to continue to talk about these things and expand on them I can guarantee you that yeah. So,
1: no, cool, but then I'm then I'm, then it's good that I f- 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 have the right intuition in some sense of uh, of what they're getting at here. Oh, my bread is done, I need to go to the oven. Okay. You, go to,
0: you go to your bread and do you you do your bread, and uh, I'm gonna go ahead yep. and close out um with everything unless there's and Rimka, JK, any last notes, questions, things before we we close out at two o'clock?
2: Yeah, I just wanted to add that the um that uh, he's doing a uh, universalist history uh, uh based on uh marx and um and uh Maynard keynes the economist and talks about uh, you know the uh, the flows of desire and so forth and um but he's added, adding a dimension of uh of a psychoanalysis the Oedipus complex to that you know and and kind of like uh supporting the uh supporting uh the uh, you know marx's uh you know notion of of, of the you know Capitalism and so forth, and uh, but these, but he's also including uh, Keynes. This idea of uh, the flows of monetary exchange,
0: it very much. Well, and, and one of the great tragedies, honestly, is uh, he was apparently working on uh, his book on Marx. Like genuinely, that's makes me sad every time I think about. Like that's the book that we didn't get. Um, mm-hmm because it would have been amazing. He's pulling from a lot of those. And I'll I'll say he's also pulling in, because as as he gets into the psychoanalysis and the philosophical semiotic side of things, and you can go look at logic of sense and difference and repetition, he pulls in a great deal from Kant. He pulls in a great deal from uh, uh, Saussure. He pulls in from Yelmslev, from Spinoza, a lot of other sort of elements that also inform this sort of larger scale thinking. Uh, We just happened to... uh, yesterday in our logic of sense reading go over the chapter where he introduces the body without organs uh and talks through it and it's as a pure purely semiotic thing not as a political or psychoanalytic as a semiotic element and it's uh really incredible to be able to see kind of this sort of setup but yeah he's combining a whole bunch of those a bunch of things it's a i made the joke once that deleuze is like the family guy of philosophy because like everything's a reference to something uh and it works. I really like it in this case. I'm not a fan of family guy, but I like this
2: yeah the only question is uh you know I wonder if the idea that the Oedipal you know complex really can be universalized uh where you know um with this global um capitalism you know in different cultures uh if uh, if that uh, if that's really necessary that uh, you know. But you, that you could leave out the Oedipal complex part, and still understand how the cultures become capitalized, and and also explain the processes of flow and monetary exchange and so forth, and uh, you know without the Oedipal part.
0: Well, I think specific. So I my understanding of this just to just to dive because that's a really fun tangent to go down. So I'm going to just dive after you. Um, to me, I think a lot of anti-Oedipus is not actually about Oedipus. Like it obviously is, but it's it's more about how Oedipus works as an apparatus or as a uh, assemblage, and them utilizing that as an example and a, a way to poke at stuff to describe. Hey, look! This is Oedipus. Look at Oedipus over time. Look at how this operates. Look at how this goes. Now, apply that to all of the assumptions and assemblages that actually make you up and make us up as societies, where it's it's not that there is a such thing as an oedipus complex it's these are contingent realizations and assemblages that utilize representation to create and cause repression and cause us to do the things that we're doing and and modify behavior and allow people ultimately to go back to what i think is the ultimate question of capitalism and schizophrenia here which is why do people desire their own repression uh why what answering right for the first time and i think they nail that pretty pretty heavily as especially in the next like little bit here but it's like using oedipus as that element where we can say look it's not just this it's what is beauty how does this operate how does this repression this demand this complex and you can start spreading across capital and going, because it's the king of representation. Kind of like it really powers through um, a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, real quick on YouTube, we had a mindfuck asks mindfuck. Nice. Uh, are there manuscripts from Marx book he was planning? Not that I've ever heard of, and I have annoyed. Like I'm fortunate that we have almost three thousand people who've come through, and no one's ever shown up that that has heard anything about him. Uh, and I've I've Googled. Sadly, no. Uh, I think it's it's lost forever. I think there was one thing that sort of leaked out, but I'm uncertain if it's dubious or not. Sorry about that. Go ahead, uh JK.
2: Oh it's all that that's uh, yeah, yeah, I guess uh, that the uh yeah, that that's a clarification. Maybe the the Oedipus part is doesn't have to be there. Um uh, it's, uh maybe it's something, you know, uh relevant to uh Western culture, you know, more. And that uh, maybe other cultures, it's a little, bit, a little bit different or, you know, right?
0: Yeah. And I think it's it's a similar thing to like, uh, La, La Ruelle goes on to end up making basically anti-philosophy or non-philosophy or non-Marxism. And I think yeah. it's uh, like, if, if you've ever read the introduction of non-Marxism, La Ruelle does this practice, I think, exemplary, where it's not about Marxism. Like it totally is about Marxism, but it's about understanding that it gives you these cliches of thought process and representation as you dive into Marxism that themselves actually may not be that helpful, but that you you stop realizing the, the way that you're asking questions is only reconfirming. It's, I go back to the example I gave of the, uh, I say three numbers, two, four, eight, and then you say back to me, uh, I'm gonna say a series of numbers, and you say them back, I'll say if they apply. People go, oh, well, uh, 4, 8, 16. I'm like, yes. And then they go, cool, it's about doubling. It's like, no, it's not about doubling. That's not my rule. Oh, then uh one, two, four. It's like, yeah, that matches. Well, then it's doubling. No, the, the answer is, my rule is the numbers always go up, but you never, ever run into people who when they play that game, turn around and go six, three, one. Like no one ever does that. So you'll never find someone who truly like invalidates what you're, you know, gives you a no answer. And it's this, it's, this is the problem. If you start with a place of Oedipus or you start with a place of, Oh, it's, it's ascending. You don't realize that you're assuming it's ascending. Like you need to go all the way back to the first assumption that, and no one ever does that. And we need to really do more to get to that point. And that's, they're utilizing Oedipus here as an example of that, but it's, Uh, feel feel free it's an amazing game to play with literally anyone because everyone will always give you ascending numbers you will never ever and if you do please let me know because i want to know what happened once but no one will ever give you descending numbers and so no one will ever be able to guess what the actual rule is it's humans are weird we're fucking weird man but with that sorry go ahead thanks for that
2: yeah thank you that's uh that that, that's thanks See see you next week
0: yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Thank everyone. Uh, thank you on YouTube for joining us. Uh, we hope to uh, uh, see you all next week. Um, same bat time, same bat place, all of that. And we'll continue thank this you. section. Thank you for coming, JK, by the way. Thanks for coming, Ken. This was great. Thank you.